Hello and welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Jason and Pete from Squeaky Pedal. Today we are again joined by John Broom, author of Reported Missing in the Great War, 100 Years of Searching for the Truth from Pen and Sword Books. We spoke to John in the previous episode about various aspects of his book, about how the missing were were treated, how uh, their families went about trying to discover what had happened to them and today we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the specific characters featured within John's book and also some more quite shocking revelations with regards to the Directorate of Grave Registration Inquiry and their work on exhuming and recovering bodies that we've touched on in previous episodes so uh, I'd like to welcome you back onto the podcast John. Thank you Jason and Pete nice to be here again. Brilliant great to have you here so if we if we think about your book you cover quite a number of very moving stories of eight different soldiers who were lost in the conflict. There are two of these that I'd like to talk about. The first being the story of Frank Mead, who was killed in his grave lost after the war, but which was found again in 2016. Uh, and the second is the story of Lieutenant Gilbert Donnelly, whose grave was lost almost for a century until it was rediscovered through a remarkable piece of detective work. And I think that the story, sorry, of these soldiers are remarkable in the sense that they were part of the missing and we were able later on to to find out their identities and find out who they were. Yes, indeed. Well, you had uh, Nicola Nash from the JCCC on the other week and one of the things she mentioned was the last big case she worked on was the case of three soldiers whose remains have been uncovered when a farmer was digging a drainage ditch in 2016. And one of these was actually Frank Mead. Frank had been killed during the Battle of Combray. He died in early December 1917. And five men had been killed by heavy artillery fire that night, Frank Mead and, and four of his comrades. And they were actually given an impromptu burial by, by the rest of the men in the 23rd Battalion of the Londons. And they then had to withdraw from the front line. So essentially where Frank and his comrades had been buried fell into the hands of the Germans. But before that had happened, all Frank's effects had been carefully removed and sent back to his family who lived in, in South East London. Now, we mentioned last time we spoke about a letter that had been returned to the Greensmith family in Sheffield. There was also a letter that Frank's younger brother, um, Reg, had sent out to him on the 1st of December, which was again returned. So there's this heart-rending letter of, you know, looking forward to seeing you again and all the chitter-chatter of news and and what's going to be happening at Christmas in London, probably Frank never got to read. So yeah, he, he was buried, the, the area fell into German hands, and that was really the last that was heard of Frank. The family sort of treasured his, his letters and, and um, various other artefacts that had been, been sent back home, and nothing more was heard of him until 2016, when this farmer digging a trench in his field to, in order to drain a uh, drain pipe came across this shocking discovery, three bodies. And as Nicola mentioned to you, um, it was a, a little piece of cloth that had the insignia of the London Regiment on that then enabled them to start narrowing down from her point of view of detective work and looking through the various war diaries and also the use of, of DNA sampling, which is obviously wasn't available at the time of the you know, immediately post Great War when people trying to discover who these people were. So that research was done. Battalion War Diary was consulted with the records of the Commonwealth War Grace Commission. And eventually, two of those three bodies that would, had been dug up were discovered to be Private Henry Wallington of the County of London Battalion and Frank Mead. Um, they managed to trace some of Frank's brothers 
descendants, one living in America, one living in the eastern area of England, and actually managed to confirm that that body was Frank Mead. Sadly, the third body that was found up, they, they came, as Nicholas said, very, very close to thinking they had a match as well, but, but that one didn't match up. Those bodies were then given a proper burial. The Comrades had to hastily do in, in 1918. A proper burial could be how the last post being played, the coffins being draped in Union flags, a service of, of remembrance and commemoration held. And the uh, family actually got to choose the inscription, which is now on Frank's headstone, from the field of heroes I embrace, my mother, my father, my brother remembered, ne never lost. So that was a... 99 years after Frank had been originally buried, he came to light and now has a recognised grave and it means a tremendous deal to the family. And that was done, researched and recognised via DNA and other techniques. Now, some burials are actually recognised and commemorated by detective work without any need to go any digging, any discoveries. The second one we're going to talk about is Lieutenant Gilbert Donnelly. Gilbert came from a, a Belfast Roman Catholic family they'd reached middle-class respectability despite the more limited prospects for roman catholics in belfast at the time with sectarianism lurking in the background and gilbert was a you know a young man setting out in life he'd just begun his medical studies at the queen's university belfast and enlisted in 1915 stating on his enlistment form any unit the irish preferred so he was sent to the royal monster fusiliers within the 16th irish division and after 18 months of service on, on the western front he found himself at saint emily in March 1918, just as the Germans were preparing for the Great uh, Spring Offensive. Gilbert and his battalion had been charged with holding a four-mile section of the front line forward of St. Emily. And during the day of 21st of March, it's not quite clear from the records, either he was killed early that day by gas and shelling, or he was killed by a sniper's bullet later that afternoon as he was trying to direct the fire of a Lewis gun. So you know, we mentioned how sometimes reports of how people died were sometimes contradictory. Or confused and there's one example so again the Germans overran that piece of ground Gil Gilbert's comrades had to retreat as far as the family was concerned that was the last that had been heard of him but fortunately in many ways the battalion's chaplain Tom Duggan and the regimental medical officer Captain Bissett had stayed behind with about 20 wounded and dying men in order to in the chaplain's case read the last rites and in the the medic's case to try and save as many of them as possible so Duggan and Bissett were taken prisoner by the Germans. When they were released at the end of the war, it would actually transpire that a number of men of the 1st Battalion Royal Munster Fusiliers had actually been given a proper Christian burial, which would have been some comfort to the family. Also, the work of the British Red Cross and Order of St John Wounded and Missing Bureau, which we spoke about last time, also uncovered three or four statements from some of Gilbert's comrades who could state categorically they'd seen him killed. His family were in no doubt, yes, he was dead, and yes, he'd been given a proper burial at the time or some sort of burial with a chaplain present, but that was it. The grave couldn't be located at the end of the war. Gilbert, again, was remembered in the family. His memory was passed down through the generations, but really, a century later, that's what the family knew. You know, a great-uncle Gilbert had been killed in the war, served in the Royal Monster Fusiliers. So we come to the centenary of the outbreak of the Great War in 2014, and one of Gilbert's great-nephews starts to think, well, maybe it's time to try and revisit this story, see if we can dig up something more. And he, he posted on an online forum, Great War Forum, and it just so happened that the day he posted, another chap had been 
researching the same battalion in the same area and had, had come across actually visiting a cemetery a grave to an unknown lieutenant of the Royal Munster Fusiliers, which is quite unusual for it to be that specific, an unknown lieutenant, to have the regiment, but not to have a specific identification. So they started to work, uh, trying to find out more about the circumstance of his death. So Gilbert's great-nephew, for the first time, read these reports that had been sent to his great-great-uncle, you know, nearly 100 years ago, and it said it's, it sent chills down his spine to, to read the the accounts describing Gilbert's death and to look at the war diary listing the officers who had gone wounded or, or were missing or being killed that day. Fortuitously, the chap who'd been to the cemetery actually realised that there were only two lieutenants of the Royal Munster Fusiliers had been killed in that area during the early stages of the spring offensive and who had never been identified. So by process of elimination, I think it wasn't the other one because he was placed in action that was some miles away. It was known that there'd been a burial of a group of Royal Munster Fusiliers in the area around St. Emily. They also managed to find from the work of the people who did the reinterment that a lot of the bodies in St. Emily Cemetery had been found about 500 yards away, which was just the spot that would match up with where Gilbert and his comrades had been killed. So by process of elimination, they put forward a case that in plot one, row H, number 15, St. Emily Cemetery, that that unknown lieutenant of the Royal Munster Fusiliers was Lieutenant Gilbert Donnelly of the Royal Munster Fusiliers. It actually took quite a lot of persuasion. Gilbert's great nephew had to send in an 18-page file. It had to go through various committees and checks, and it actually took as long as the war itself for it to be ratified that that grave was Gilbert's. And quite movingly, just over 100 years after his death, there was a, a ceremony where... A relative was presented with the Union flag that Gilbert's father had never been able to receive, that the, the whole extended family were able to pay the tributes in music, in poetry, in, in words, and it was an extremely moving ceremony. So two examples there of how the missing, the ranks of the missing, have been depleted and the ranks of the, the known dead where we have a, a place to actually mark their sacrifice, they've, they've moved to that part. Yeah, it's incredible, you know, testimony, isn't it, to the work that they do, that, that they managed to find, the, you know, they still managed now to find, you know, unidentified people and give the family a bit of closure. And like you say, it gives them a real, imbues it even further sort of personal connection, doesn't it, to their relatively, that they obviously never met in person, but they got, you know, they've heard stories about them and, and that kind of thing. And it gives them, a, yeah, it must give them a real special sense of connection to those guys. It, it did. They're able to sort of complete the mourning that the the people who knew Gilbert and Frank at the time were never able to experience. They were sort of left a hole, and almost this this hole has now been filled to an extent. And then, so if we go back in time, then to the days of just after the war, then when the Directorate of Grey's Registration Inquiry and then the Imperial War Graves Commission was going about their attempts to identify bodies after the war and kind of notify family members and give them more info that they could. What What's the kind of process that they went through back, you know, 100 years ago? So the Directorate of Graves Registration Inquiries had been set up in March 1916 with overall responsibility for recording burial details and locations. Previously, it had been an ad hoc system left to individual battalions, perhaps a chaplain, perhaps a medical officer. By the end of the war, an estimated 160,000 isolated graves have been relocated into existing cemeteries, and smaller cemeteries have been concentrated into larger ones. But there still remained half a million men missing upon the, the signing of the armistice on the 11th of November 1918. So 10 days later, the searching and exhumation work began in earnest. Men were actually asked to volunteer for this. It wasn't compulsory. 
who are paid an extra allowance of two shillings and sixpence a day, uh, as well as the British doing this, the Canadians, Australians, French search parties were scouring the areas where their armies had sustained heavy losses, hoping to find as many men as possible and to give them decent burials and to give their families a sense of closure. So there's, there's one description from a Captain Dunn who encountered a large number of Australian exhumers at work in April 1919. He said, large numbers of troops were engaged in burying or reburying their numerous dead, left where they fell since the historic advance of August the 8th, 1918. And it was a mixture of troops freshly drafted out from England men who hadn't previously been in France, you know, hadn't had the, the psychological and physical scars of the war. So when a body was discovered, each exhumation would require between five and nine men to expedite the digging up of the remains, transportation to the final resting place and the burial. So how they worked, it was almost like a, a police search these days when they're looking for a, a missing body or, or, or somebody who's been missing. They divide the land up into 500 square yard grids and they would march systematically across the land, squads of 32 men, and each was issued with a quite macabre set of equipment. They'd have two pairs of rubber gloves, two shovels, stakes to mark the location of the graves found, canvas and rope to tie up any remains they found, stretchers, creosol and wire cutters. So that, that's what they set out to work with. They became quite expert at spotting where indications of remains would be, just like an archaeologist these days might be able to look at a field and think, we need to dig there, it'll be something under there. These men became experts in their sort of quite gruesome and, and, and grisly task. Obvious signs that a man might be buried there was a rifle or a stake protruding from the ground. That's with a helmet on top, the classic sort of almost cliched, there's a man there. Partial remains or equipment on the surface might be protruding from the ground. There might be rat holes, often small bones or pieces of equipment that might be brought to the surface by rats. There might be slight discoloration of the grass, earth or water. Grass might turn a vivid bluish green when, it, when a body was buried underneath it. Or the earth and water might have a greenish black or grey colour. So horrible, horrible task the, these men undertook. So once they had found a, a dead soldier, these exhumation parties would undertake a careful examination of the neck, wrist, braces for the presence of an identification tag. But they were under pressure as well. They didn't have the time that, you know, Nicola National team these days would have to carefully piece together every individual scrap of evidence. They were working at a pace. So if the information as to who a man was wasn't readily available, they would just say, oh, that's tough. Record what we can and move on. Hence, we have Gilbert Donnelly as the first lieutenant, Rollman's to Fusiliers. That's all we know. We need to crack on now. Sometimes they could try and identify a man by his boots. One soldier was identified because he had footwear that was branded the Unity Cooperative Society Limited of Ringstead with a date of 1913, so they could trace back. So they had some quite dark humour, some of these burial parties, because they had to, to sort of maintain their morale. You know, exhumation companies obsessed with the idea that their reputation depended on concentrating the highest possible number of bodies in the shortest possible time, often paid little or no heed to the essential matter of identification. So they were working against time. As it turned out, they existed for about three years after the war. And really, I suppose, essentially, they were going for volume and quantity ahead of the quality of doing the utmost to identify each individual man. I think for me, reading through, obviously we've we've kind of uncovered some of the sort of the unknown men behind these grave registration units. Uh, people like Captain Fisher, who was working in the grave registration unit fourteen, and who we know played this key role in the in the unknown warrior operation. But I think that for me, one of the most powerful quotes within your own book is is a description by a private Jay McCauley, who who talks about and it's in graphic detail, isn't it, what it was actually like 
to work on these exhumation parties and the things, the sites they would experience and become hardened to, really. I mean, what impact did this gruesome work have on the men attempting to, to carry it out? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Macaulay. He says it took him about two weeks to become hardened to what he did. I mean, he, he described his work. Often I've picked up the remains of a fine, brave man on a shovel, just a little heap of bones and maggots to be carried to the common burial place. Numerous bodies were found lying submerged in the water in shell holes and mine craters, bodies that seemed quite whole, but which became like huge masses of white, slimy chalk when we handled them. I shuddered as my hands, covered in soft flesh and slime, moved about in search of the disc and I've had to pull bodies to pieces in order they should not be buried unknown. It's very painful to have to bury the unknown. So there we have the other side of it. If you were going to go to the lengths to try and find out who these men were, you really had to become quite intrusive. And the, the psychological effect on, on men like Macaulay must have been quite intense. Another, an Australian, a private Macbeth, talked about working the fields, digging up bodies, being a very unpleasant job. He actually had the painful experience of, of seeing an English lady who'd come over to try and visit her son's grave, found him lying in a bag and fainted. And Macbeth, with understatement, said, I cannot say I'm exactly in love with my job. The, the, the soldiers that do lie buried, who are now in Commonwealth war graves, who were exhumed by these parties and, and buried by these parties, and, and in many cases identified, the families do owe a debt of gratitude to these men who had to do this awful post-war work yeah definitely and it, as you say the impact on the on the men that were kind of on the ground doing that it's kind of ripples out doesn't it because they're on the front line of it as it were dealing with the remains and you know as you say in that graphic quote there and and then the ripples kind of go out don't they as as you say they may be not uh, by the very nature of it they may be not concentrating on kind of identifying but just going for volume by that very nature the missing that remain missing and remain unknown was to where they are does that how, what was the kind of impact on the families of those men that didn't have a grave that they could you know, visit or mourn or just didn't know where they were? Well, I suppose as, as the, the exhumations were going on and the searches were going on, as a family, you might still live in hope that your son, husband, etc., might be one of those exhumed. You would get the, the information that we found him. He's now being buried in this cemetery in this plot and, you know, here's the record. So even three years later... 200 bodies per week were being found in the battlefields, but the government eventually decided enough was enough. They thought it was costing too much money, it was tying up too much of the army's manpower, and the Secretary of State for War in November 1921 he went to the House of Commons and he emphasised that the whole battlefield area of France and Flanders had been systematically searched at least six times. Some areas of intense fighting had, had been searched as many as 20 times. So he acknowledged it was probable that further graves would be found, but they wouldn't be found by systematic searches anymore. They would be found randomly and occasionally by French-Belgian farmers undertaking reconstruction work on their land. In terms of the families, this actually caused quite a, a kickback because it's almost like these men were now being abandoned. We've done our work, you know, his son sacrificed his life. Yes, he's out there somewhere. No, we can't say where he is. And we're pulling all the men back who might be able to provide that answer for you. It, there was also worries. I mean, we mentioned Edward Gaston last time that if the army is withdrawn, then if a body is found, what's to stop unscrupulous French-Belgian civilians trafficking bodies, personal effects? You know, hey, I found a body in, in, in my field. It, it's... Yours, you know, can, I can identify who it was, write to the family, do you want him back? We can arrange that, which was, again was totally against the ethos of, of the commemoration of the war dead. 
So heart-rending times and there were campaigns set up in Britain to actually bring the bodies home. It wasn't helped when in the early 1920s the American government decided to start repatriating bodies back to America and one little effect of this was actually a Leeds man by the name of Private Tom Backhouse who'd emigrated to America served in the American army was killed. He was actually allowed to be brought out because he'd served in the American army and he was brought back to Leeds and buried in Holbeck Cemetery. So you have these families in Leeds thinking, well, that lady has her son's grave there. She can walk to it every day if she likes, but the British army, the British government has abandoned my son. You know, they're not interested anymore. So campaigns were made to try and bring back the dead, to try and make the searches go on longer. You know, the, the case of Edith Cavill, she was brought back. You know, the British nurse who was shot by a German firing squad in 1915. Her body was brought back with some pomp in May 1919 and given a burial outside uh, Norwich Cathedral. But these campaigns came to nothing. So eventually it just tailed off and these families were left with this nothingness. You know, your son's not here. We don't know where he is. And that's the end of it as far as we're concerned. You may be lucky if he happens to be found by a, a civilian, but that's that. I think that that's the the most shocking aspect of it really is that irregardless of of what the job is and it's the same today you know the fact that this is about recovering carefully recovering the remains of hundreds of thousands of soldiers who have laid down their lives for their country it still boils down to the issue of cost <laughs> and obviously the government not wanting to continue the expense like you say, of recovering these bodies and the way that it was being done with the DGRE. And that results in two of the key players in our story. On the October the 28th, 1921, the Daily Mirror covers the last of the BEF in France. And two of those people are Lieutenant Hardwick, who we know from the Unknown Warrior story, and Major E.S. Fitzsimon, the last soldiers to leave as part of the, the DGRE. And it's as a result of this scaling back of the operations that the government are taking out in order to find bodies and this has quite a serious impact on the potential discovery of british soldiers remains doesn't it and this is exposed quite shockingly in a in a in a daily mail investigative journalist who was sent out there in october 1921 who kind of uncovered the reality of what happens if a French or Belgian civilian discovered a British soldier's remains now that this this work of the DGRE wasn't going on. Yeah, so so the Daily Mail never slow to try and get in on a story that they think might like churn up people's emotions. In October 1921, they sent an investigative journalist out to examine what was happening now once the, the DGRE had withdrawn from the area. There was no formal process in place. And what the journalist found was that any workman who discovered a body was being paid the sum of two francs by the French or Belgian government, but not the British government, paid nothing. So again, it reinforces that idea that these men have been abandoned. You know, even, even the French and Belgian authorities care more about the exhumation reburial of your son than the British government did. So, and obviously that would make families anxious that if a man was found, it might not be reported because even though the workman might get paid a couple of francs in compensation, it might make that ground unusable. It might might delay the, the reconstruction of, of that, that area. They might lose wages whilst they're waiting for, for the British to come out and file the reports and take the body away. So it was suggested that dozens of identifiable British soldiers were actually being abandoned. People who could be identified were not being identified because the British withdrawn. It was being left to ad hoc arrangements between the French and Belgian civilians and, and their local authorities. 
that's quite shocking really it forces then basically the the imperial wargraves commission to request ex dgr and e staff to come back to france and to be attached to searching gangs there because obviously those those people are the experts they've been doing it well since the end of the war haven't they really identifying bodies and then the british government renege and agree to pay the, that two franc gratuity don't they they do so eventually they end up taking back ownership of it and, and that that sort of continued to today but they were very mindful that there would still be an ongoing impact on the war office and army record offices as a number of inquiries that are coming in we found this scrap of information and just like nicola and her team do today we need to triangulate it with your information don't have the the online searching facilities we have now it, it was it was still creating a strain on the existing administration so yes the, the search for the missing has never ended and it's still ongoing today but it did really scale back in 1921 but perhaps not to the extent that it would have done had there not been this kickback from from families and, and the daily mail and you mentioned before about just the sheer numbers of unknown soldiers that were, you know, didn't have a grave and that kind of, you know, nothingness that the families end up with, that they don't know where they are, they haven't got a grave to go to. And that kind of, you know, sense of loss that's kind of just never quite, you know, you can't quite close that off, as it were. Did the sheer volume of unknown soldiers, did that kind of have a big impact on the nation, do you think, in terms of kind of obviously the subject of our podcast, The Unknown Warrior, and in terms of general remembrance and commemoration as well, did that help to lead to the outpouring of emotion after the war? It did. It sort of led to commemoration going in two directions. Firstly, it got internalised into families. So families would keep those precious artefacts, those letters, perhaps the, the death penny medal that came, mentors that were sent back from the front uh, in some Households, little shrines would would be you know erected with a with a candle in front of the, the man's photograph and, and, and his artifacts around him. In, in one example in the book, the the Pope family of, of Dorchester, a, a book of remembrance was actually commissioned for the men who had fallen, also the other the other members of the family who had served in the war, and they got Thomas Hardy to write the foreword. So various families internalised commemoration of their loved one in their own ways. So it got internalised, but it also got externalised and collectivised, if, if you like, because of the sheer volume of unknown soldiers, you couldn't just say, well, these soldiers have a known burial, those are the graves, and the rest, well, that's a shame they're out there somewhere. So the establishment of enormous memorials on, on the Western Front and other fighting fronts to, to the missing. So you've got the, the, the Teepal Memorial with 72,000 names on, the, the Meningate Eve with 55,000 names, and even to this day, the last post still played at the Meningate, so that memorialization, that collective memorialization still continues. You know, various other large memorials to the missing at Arras, at Tyne Cot, Commonwealth ones at Delville Wood and Vimy Ridge. So it's internalized in families, it's collectivized and externalized on the Western Front, and it's also made communitarian in Britain with the establishment of community war memorials throughout the 1920s, where it wasn't a top-down government thing, it was left to each individual community to decide how they would memorialise those men. Quite typically, it would be some sort of stone cross, stone tablet with the names on. In some villages, it might be a memorial hospital. This was one close to where I live, um, out in Home Firth, a, a lovely sort of cottage hospital with, with panels with all the, the names of all those from Home Firth who died. There were cricket pitches set up as memorials. So the sheer scale of the missing meant that memorials were both brought within the realm of the family but also made matters of public and even international interest. 
And those great memorials to the missing today are still visited by relatives as a focus for commemoration. Our poppies are laid, mementos are laid, school groups are taken there to help collectively remember. School parties might go and investigate the name of one of the soldiers on there who was an old boy of the school. So it was taken both ways. So yes, the sheer scale of the missing had a massive impact on the way that the missing were commemorated. And it's important to remember that the First World War, that the way that commemoration was articulated with the creation of these memorials, whether it be in a church or a, a town war memorial or, or these huge important monuments on the battlefields of France, right up to the Unknown Warrior, has coloured the way that we memorialise servicemen who've been lost in conflict right up to the present day. And it helps those monuments remain relevant basically whether it's 100 years ago or whether it's now they're still relevant because they still empower basically how we how we commemorate how we remember how we articulate grief and and pride and and remembrance in in our loved ones yeah, the, the speech was in many different ways i mean in little yorkshire town where i live you see on Remembrance Sunday the, the, the parades you know, marching through town. The sheer number of people gathering around the War Memorial, which is outside our parish church, it grows year on year. There's almost been a, a renaissance of commemoration and memorialisation of, the, of these men. It, you know, we, we talked about the case of, of George Jackson last time, the, the young private from Carlton and Lindrit near, near Worksop, you know, how his memorial w- w- was, was left to ruin. And more recently, it's been restored and made a real focus of pride in that particular community. So, yes, the, the missing will never be forgotten, that there's just new chapters to be written in their story. That's a very articulate way of putting it, and it's important that books like yours continue to be read and explored so that the stories of these soldiers, of the missing, continue to be remembered, commemorated, and also the, the work, as you said, of the war detectives that we spoke to continues so that we can try and put as many names to these to these brave servicemen as we possibly can. John, it's been fascinating to speak to you. We're really grateful for you agreeing to come on the podcast. I can heartily recommend your book to anybody who's who's interested in the subject. And just to clarify again, that's uh, Reported Missing in the Great War, 100 Years of Searching for the Truth, which is published by Pen and Sword Books. Yeah, and all it remains is thanks, John, for coming on the podcast and hope you continue your, your own research into, into this fascinating subject. Yeah, thank you, Jason and Pete, and good luck with the rest of your project. <laughs>